I'm Johnny Medill. Welcome to the Sheridan Sport Backpage Podcast. On today's episode, our head of sport, Andrew Nixon, and I are joined by someone who we've wanted to have on the Backpage Podcast for some time, and that's Steve Martin, the global CEO of MNC Saatchi Sport and Entertainment, one of the world's leading and largest sports marketing agencies. Steve is a friend of the Sheridan Sport team and also a sports and entertainment marketing and sponsorship expert in the truest sense, having been one of the most influential figures in the industry for over 20 years. He was recently voted the number one most influential in sport agency by PR Week for the second year running. And MNC Saatchi Sport and Entertainment is the UK's most awarded sports marketing agency over the past 12 years. Steve talks to us about firstly relocating from London to MNC's new office in Sydney last year to grow the agency globally and what it's been like living and working in Australia. He also talks to us about the Tokyo Olympics next summer, opportunities for the sports industry when it comes to innovative and creative partnerships uh, through digital. He talks about the online influence of athletes such as Marcus Rashford, He talks about the early part of his career working with some of the biggest athletes on the planet at Adidas. He shares his favourite sports autobiographies and he also talks about why his home Northern Ireland will always mean so much to him. Steve's knowledge of the sports industry is pretty much unrivaled and it's been a privilege for us to have him share his insights on the back page. I hope you enjoy it. Steve, first of all, uh, welcome to the Backpage podcast. We've obviously been keen to get you on uh, the pod for quite a while now, and we obviously appreciate you making uh, the time, especially given it's late in the evening in Sydney. Uh, And indeed, perhaps as a starting point, we can just stay uh, briefly with Sydney. Uh, When it was announced you were heading out there, it was obviously pretty big news within the industry. So it'd be interesting to hear a little bit more about how that came about but also how you're finding life in what is a wonderful city. You've just showed us your view uh, out the back of your house there. Um, so it would be interesting to hear how you're finding life in that great city, albeit uh, during what is an extraordinary time. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it was a really quite a big call. Um, a lot of people have asked, what are you doing? Like, why have you done this? And um, what's the whole purpose of it? Because it wouldn't be the most natural place to do a global role from. Um, and I guess there was a number of things which have dictated it. Um, I guess when we set up the business in 2004 at MNC Sachs, you know, it's coming in 16 years. So um, it just felt that it would be a good thing, I thought it was a good thing, to have a truly global role, to go and live in one of the markets for a while and also really help it. So I think at the time, the Sydney agency was pretty flat. Um, it's had yeah. quite a lot of good years. And I just felt like it would be great to come down here, base myself out of here, help kick that a bit and put it in shape, which is starting to really go, which has been great, even despite the COVID stuff. But also then our next big plan is to open in Asia. So yeah. we, it's probably a hole in our, our, in our, um, in our offices and, and where we are based. We don't have something in Asia formally. So the plan was to go on, you know, easy flight to get to, to Singapore or Shanghai or whatever um, from here. It's only seven or eight hours. So it's very e- easier to do from here in that time. But um, obviously, that's been put been put on hold given the circumstances we've been facing. But obviously, also a fantastic life experience for you and the family, I'd imagine. Yeah, it has been. I mean, I, I 
I don't know. I think we talked before, Andrew, and I think Johnny as well. You have been down here and, and um, experienced yeah. it. I mean, it's it's such an interesting place to obviously live from the lifestyle thing. I mean, there's no question. You, you realise what you put up with in London is pretty unbelievable, <laughs> like what we all put up with. Yeah. Um, not that I don't love it. Of course, we all love it. But um, we love you know, London is feels big and it feels you know important and all that. But actually, living here has been a real eye opener um, to sort of having balance and having more balanced your life, but also balance to your whole career because it 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 um, it flows beautifully here. But also the culture is, in terms of the sport and entertainment world, it's an absolute hotbed. I mean, it's yeah. You know, it really is. And I think what we're seeing as well, there's huge trends coming out of Australia where California, for example, used to be everything or the fitness and, you know, health and fitness movement all used to come out of California and the West Coast of America. It's all coming out of the East Coast of Australia now. So all the big trends, some of the big gym fitness movements all coming out of here, some of the products coming out of here, some big protein brands, some of the big fitness, you know, apparel brands all coming out of here. So... It's a very changed place compared to the first time I came down here in 19, I think it was 1996. Yeah. When I first came here and then obviously I spent a lot of time here in 1997, 98 when Joe Maddy, last time when we the All Blacks, I used to travel through here a lot and then that rolled into Sydney Olympics 2000 where, to be honest with you, that's where I fell in love with Sydney, around yeah. Sydney 2000 and the place changed exponentially and it's gone on over the last sort of 20 years since I've been coming down. It's, you know, it's a brilliant place to live, but it's a, it's there's much more to it, and the creative industry here is thriving, and it's very like it really surprises you, and it surprised me even being here in the last ten months. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that Sydney 2000 was a was a was a game changer for the city. I mean, I lived in Sydney for my inverted commas gap year in in 1999, and we lived in I think it was Campbell Parade and Bondi Beach, which it's fair to say was a lot less salubrious then than it is now, and certainly. You know they did a lot of work to it post uh, post the, uh, the Olympics and, and in preparation for the Olympics, but it's it's undoubtedly a changed city. And you know we talked um, when we had a a catch up last week about um, you know some of the local sports leagues uh, and sports um, which are which are I guess really driving the market. Indeed, the, the the events that you've most connected to in your short time there. And I think you mentioned the NBL, which is obviously the National Basketball League, which is something that is really I guess, captured the imagination in Sydney and as Australia as a whole. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's sort of been interesting for me to come down and really try and live and breathe and understand all the different sporting codes here because they all conflict with each other. You know, it's, it's they're too many and they're too mm. many sort of footy codes as they would d- d- describe them. Um, so all the talent is competing, you know, all the talent and particularly young talent, they're all... Um, trying to go for the same talent, particularly around rugby league and yeah. you know, uh, rugby union here, and you know that's playing out with a young player, sixteen-year-old player at the minute. You know they're all fighting for a signature. Uh, so it's been interesting to see the dynamic across all the sports. The one that I just liked looking at and looked at the structure and the product itself in terms of you know what they're doing on the court was the NBL because they've got it. They've got it structured really well. They've got that local rivalry really working. The actual live events, you know, they're getting ten to 15,000 to some of those NBL games. And actually what they've done beautifully is link it back into the NBA. They've hired a two or three proper senior NBA executives who are joining the dots with the sort of young players coming out of, um, who would maybe go into the college system in, in um, the US. They're actually coming down here 
to play because yeah. of credibility and it feels like where the NBL is going to open up will be into the Asian market. You've seen a lot of really, really good Asian talent coming in. So that's been, that's been incredibly interesting as well to see the different sporting codes. Um, you know, it lives and breathes and plays out in the media here every day. Like it's sometimes front page news, you know, lead stories on the nationals, even though we've seen bushfires and huge dramas going on, you know, all around the world, sports still is incredibly dominant here. Um, and sets the tone for for the nation half the time, and it's really punchy. Like it's some of the, I mean, we think the the UK media are tough. My God, you should read some of the stuff. Like the opinions yeah. are absolutely like they don't hold back. Yeah. Um, but and, and you know we've seen a lot of dramas and in, in quite a few of the sporting codes already in my time just here. The likes of Rugby Australia, you know, have already gone through one chief exec all infighting, the products all over the place, Super Rugby just is, you know, they can't get the broadcast deal. It's, it's hectic. Um, yeah. So it, it's never a dull moment, and it's been brilliant to sort of just see that and be quite focused on it. Yes, I'm sure the Australian media will have enjoyed Ireland beating England at cricket last night, and sure they'll pick up, at, up on that uh, at some point uh, this morning. Yeah. Um, Steve, there's been obviously so much discussion um, about the effects of the last four or five months and the effects uh, on the sports industry and indeed how the industry has navigated uh, the various challenges. And I think it's right, obviously, to acknowledge the extraordinary efforts to get live sport back on, something we've all missed enormously and I suspect probably won't take for granted again. But I suppose we wanted to shift the narrative a little bit and look forward to some of the more positive uh, times ahead. Uh, there's obviously an enormous opportunity for rights holders and obviously brands from your perspective uh, in sport to embrace change uh, and look at more creative, innovative ways of partnering and activating those partnerships, particularly as we see it through digital. Um, I'm interested to know what you see as some of the biggest opportunities now, particularly brand side, which is obviously your major focus. Yeah, we've been looking at it long and hard, Andrew, you have to say. I mean, it's you know, I've always have had the belief of never waste a crisis. And in some way we've gone through and had probably the biggest reset in our time from not just in our sports industry, like that's a small world given the, the world dramas, but, you know, we're living in a time which means you have to change and you've had to sort of have a look at things and go, are we doing this right? You know, if we're going back and, and, and sometimes losing staff or cutting staff back and budgets being cut and, you know, live sports stopping, all these moving parts that we're so used yeah. to being having an upward trend have gone into total reverse. So it's been like, how the hell do you manage that? But as, as we say, these things are sent to test you. Um, and we, as an agency, you know, have just had a look at it and, and tried to have an outside looking and approaching we came up with a thing called what we call the reset because we believe that there will be a time where there'll be a line in the sand and this yeah. will start to go and get slow but sure steps back to, you know, probably partly where we were before. But I don't think we want to go back to exactly where we were before. And I think what we've learned in the last three, four, five months has been totally extraordinary and we will not really know until it's actually over. But yeah. we're learning every week and every day. I think that the... The thing for me, it's made us all um, value things more, number one. I think you suddenly you take something away from people, 
particularly yeah. in, in, in live sport, that it beca- you know, it's social currency, it's daily social currency. You take that away, it gels families, it gels friends, it gels just huge occasions. You take it away, you suddenly realize, oh my God, like I've lost half, you know, one, I've lost half my chat. <laughs> and, but, and, but secondly, you've lost, you know, Half um, quarters, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you've lost a lot of that, but 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 you suddenly realise actually, you know, when this does come back, it'll be like a celebration of humanity. I really believe it will. And I think going forward, and let's hope looking into twenty twenty one and Tokyo, Tokyo could be like amazing. I think Tokyo was going to be incredible anyway. Um, and given I, I spent quite a bit of time down there during the Rugby World Cup last year, and. You know, Japan's an incredible city. I'd spent quite a bit of time there in 2002 during the World Cup when they shared it with um, Korea. Um, so I think there are these moments that hopefully we'll be able to get back to that and celebrate it. But the learnings have been quite amazing. And uh, the businesses that have really started to look at how they can change and quickly and make calls and not dither around things will they be the ones that survive, the ones that don't do that. I fear for them, um, and I think we've been lucky enough to make some big calls very, very quickly uh, to, to get through that, and actually we're in a very good place to kick on and go forward, but we have to change and sometimes change our approach, change our skill set, dial up you know, and invest. We're going to go on a very, very strong investment strategy now um, to make the most of that. Um, so it's been an incredibly challenging time. So, you know, I, so I think, just come back, I think there are so many... Um, things we've learned and, and we tried to publish this through our eyes if you like and called it the lockdown and a series of things about what we see the learnings from it because there's been so many things published about the good you know, the bad and the world's going to end and all this sort of stuff we're not of that point of view we're optimistic on our outlook and I think the 10 or so points that we um, put out and published to be discussed and they're very subjective as well um, are more about what you've learned from lockdown to go forward rather than sort of, you know, stand still. One of the things, Steve, that we really wanted to ask you about was that piece that you mentioned that you and the team at MNC published a couple of weeks ago. I think you called it the reset. And there are so many lessons and takeaways that you touched on, which we could probably spend hours debating, but there were a couple that I really liked that I wanted just to get your insight on. And the first was, I think you've already touched on it slightly, this notion or idea that even whenever we're, we're in a crisis or, or a recession, human beings, sports fans, stay incredibly loyal to their, to their passion points. And one of those passion points, as we've seen in the last probably two months, is, is live sport. In that whenever yeah. Project Restart sort of got up and running, the sheer level of interest whenever the Bundesliga was the first live football to appear on TV again, you know, record viewing figures. And then whenever the Premier League sort of restarted again. Um, and you mentioned Tokyo next summer and that the sheer levels of expectation. From a brand perspective, what is the takeaway there? What's the opportunity to, I suppose, get a better understanding of, of the audience and, and, and what makes them tick? If you're in a brand, if you're in a brand shoes, you know, how, do you, how do you leverage your position there? I mean, the big learning around that, Johnny, was um, that the audience hasn't gone away. So there was, a, I think, a, almost a misunderstanding that because there's no live audiences in the stadiums, that, that cuts off, you know, 
whatever, 50,000 every time in a stadium. And there's been too much focus about what's gone on in and around stadiums. For me, over the years, it's been the great sort of, you know, um, I wouldn't say disappointment, but it's like everything shouldn't be focused on the stadium from a brand perspective. Because what goes on the pitch, the live sport, that's what you're there for. Um, yes, there's good sort of tricky, you know, creative activations and experience and stuff, which is great. But those are tactical and they're smaller. I think what you realise in this moment is it's not about the stadium, it's about the audience that hasn't gone away that is just purely watching online. And the audiences are absolutely enormous. And it just reaffirms the opportunity for brands to connect to huge audiences through sport. Yeah. Because the beauty of sport and the beauty of, I guess, the broader entertainment, like in music and film, they've got these incredible ecosystems that you can find those fans and those audiences pretty quickly and pretty easily. Because you know what they're reading, you know what they're watching, you know what they're digesting, you know what they're buying now in the data that we've got. Can you, it's so easy to find and you can find it at, at, at real scale. So whenever those live moments and those matches were going to add, and, you know, particularly in the UK, for example, and some of the highest watched Premier League games of all time, that should never be a surprise. See, that audience has never gone away. Um, and in fact, I would say the opportunity now is, um, and the trick is now for brands, is how do you connect with them socially? How do you connect with them digitally? How do you connect with them in their language? And be very much in, in terms of timing comes into that the key moments and not bombarding them. So I think there's been too much of that, really quite naive social media stuff, firing stuff out there, like wallpaper and hoping it sticks with, like it's quite annoying. Um, it's like somebody talking to you constantly at a, at a you know dinner party or whatever, you just like stop. Um, so I, I think it's, I think the lesson has been learned from that, that it's been really, really interesting to see how, with no fans in the stadiums, have things been affected? Yes, it's been affected the emotional, you know, match situation, no question. Some of the games looked like you might have been different results if there'd been fans in the stadium because the impact those fans can make. But actually, mm -hmm. from our perspective as an agency and advising brands, okay, well, you know, then our, our goal is to engage with those fans before the game and engage in the game, let, the other, let everything else happen in, in its own natural way and stop focusing on that moment. Yeah. It's interesting what you were saying about Tokyo next summer because you're right in that we have this incredible potential for next summer to be, I think you, you described it as being this extraordinary like celebration of humanity. Um, and obviously we've got so many other major sporting events in 2021 we've got the euros we've got a lions tour to south africa i mean it's it is incredibly exciting but then we've also got the elephant of the room which is no one really knows what the world is going to look like in july or august next summer um and i suppose with, with tokyo in mind it was interesting we had joanna coates on our um, previous podcast episode the ceo of, of uk athletics talking about this the, the, the sheer level of focus on tokyo next summer from a from an athlete perspective and a high performance point of view, if we shift that on to how brands are viewing next summer, um, what are you seeing there? Is there, you know, real positivity or, or is there that slight nervousness as well around the, the, the level of uncertainty that there is? Um, it's difficult. We were actually talking about this this morning because we're, we're working for Optus down here. Um, and they've got a partnership with the AOC, the Australian Olympic Committee. We're also the creative agency for the AOC down here. So we've had a lot of conversations with them. I heard Joanna's 
um, podcast last week. She's brilliant, by the way. I think she's going to be a force of nature around UK athletics. I think she's terrific. Yeah. I love her. Too. I love her. I love her positivity. I love her personality around it. You know, we did some work with her around netball. I think she's terrific. Um, but it's been very interesting. There is so much hope that the Olympics is far enough away. The Lions Tour is far enough away. You know, all the big moments that we were hoping to have this year, that they're pushed 12 months away. But in 12 months, we're not in the same position. But nobody actually knows because, you know, we, nobody would have thought this was a three-month thing, which is now becoming a six-month thing. And this virus could easily, like, I look in Australia, you know, we've been blessed here. It's been an amazing place to live through the whole period of COVID because the lockdown was soft. Um, it was quick and it was sharp, but it was soft in terms of being able to live around here. Um, yeah. But that, the spikes now in Melbourne have gone absolutely mad again. So everything's gone into lockdown there way worse than it was before. And it might come in back into New South Wales. So you can never, we can't just sit there and think this is all going to be rosy and plan like we normally can plan. And the beauty of our industry within sport is that there's always something around the corner. There's always big events every year, whether it's Olympics, a Masters, the Open, Wimbledon, F1, you know, it's never ending. And um, that's been the magic thing of why the industry is such a great place to work in because it keeps going. There's something all the time. At the minute, we don't know what's coming next week, never mind next year. So it's all about hope. Um, all you can do is take the learnings from what we've learned. And if it does roll into next year, we're going to really, really know how to activate and advise brands and, yeah. and make those sponsorships tech with no audiences in any of the stadiums. It would be the greatest shame, the greatest shame. I mean, it would be horrific to see the Olympics um, with no fans there because the Olympics is a celebration of humanity. You know, it's, it's as much about being there in the spirit than it is, you know, about what you see um, in terms of live action. Yeah. It's interesting what you say about the lack of live sport but yet, despite that, we've seen this really powerful increase in the last number of months in the influence that athletes and talent have online and really sort of innovative digital activation. And part of that is obviously down to the fact that, you know, athletes and talent are, are, are just getting greater levels of reach and engagement through their content than they ever have before. But part of it as well, and you mentioned it in your, your reset piece, is down to the fact that athletes are perhaps being now viewed differently than they were before, you know, not just as high-performing machines on the field of play, but as, you know, people, human beings with beliefs and values and, you know, activists, I suppose. Um, and that, I suppose, allows those athletes to form even closer connections with fans. Again, from a brand point of view, are you seeing that a lot? And what's, what's the shift being down to, do you think? Is it just really good content? No, it's been having smart advice. It really is. I mean, it used to be um, so controlled. And, you know, I grew up in the PR world, you know, and you were controlling a lot of what any athlete was saying on behalf of the brand. You're asking for copy approval a lot of the time. I mean, the dark arts of, you know, the PR and media world at, at the time. But, um, you know, it was very sanitized and quite robotic. Um, but then you'd get the ones who really could handle it and weren't overly, you know, media trained if you like and they were a bit looser and had a bit more flair around stuff and actually that started to, to to gain a lot more traction and i think really where we've seen is that this sort of athlete activism um when it's done right and when they're allowed to be 
you know, to speak freely and to start and, and, and to, you know, back a cause and it be, it's still got to be real. It can't be manufactured. It's incredibly empowering. And actually it's, it's quite inspiring. And I think you've now seen four or five, six really, really great examples when I guess the shackles have been off and they've been, you know, athletes and players or whatever have been allowed to be true to themselves and support causes. I mean, you know, I, I, I've been pretty vocal, and as a lot of the industry has, the Marcus Rashford thing, as, you know, his campaign for you know to get kids fed at school was just magical to me. It was perfect communication because yeah. it was raw, it was natural, it was from the heart. It had a backstory. He, it, it was, you know, it was done in the right way. Lovely tone, um, not sort of feel like his agent forced him to go and do this. It had all the magic ingredients to make it work. And I think those case studies and those examples will then get, if it needs, it need, people need really good agents. You know, they need agents who are really, really smart, who are their advisors. You know, some of these guys and kids, males and female, young women, you know, young men coming in, they don't, why should they know how to handle media? Why should they understand, you know, how to work social media? How, should, how to connect with an audience that don't? So you need really strong advice. And I think, um, it comes down to that as much as anything, but it also comes down to the, those brands then being comfortable that if they've got talent representing them in an ambassadorial way, they're happy for them to be speak the truth and speak their mind and not be overly commercial. So it's got to be a really healthy balance. Um, and I think there's, there's been a huge shift in it. And I think it's quite exciting. And I, my, my advice and our advice as an agency to those clients is just go with it. Go with yeah. it and make it natural because you get more from it. But um, there's, yeah, there, there's so many great case studies, and you mentioned Rashford as being being one really good one. But the one I like is Hector Bellerin. You know, Arsenal international footballer. You know, he's 25 years of age. He just won his third FA Cup last week. You know, he is a he's a high performing athlete, but yet he's so much more than that. And yes, he might be a bit of an anomaly, but you know, he speaks out about climate change and, and mental health. You know, he's, I think he was the first footballer to appear at Paris Fashion Week. You know, he's, I think he's got an online marketing diploma. You know, he's started a business. And, and in some ways, he's... He addressed the, the Oxford Union as well, didn't he? Did, yeah, yeah. And he, he's the example of this new modern day professional athlete that yeah. fans view differently and, and brands view differently and the industry views differently rather than him being an exceptionally good Premier League footballer, you know. Yeah, and he was sort of one one you wouldn't really, you know, you wouldn't be the, your first signing if you're going out there with a yeah. checkbook as a brand, you know. Interestingly, I think where he's played it really smart, he's obviously got this in him. I mean, he's a bit like a Gerard Piquet at Barcelona. Yeah. He's got so many dimensions to him, you know. I think Nadal has it and those many things around his foundation. You've, got, you've seen a lot of those big athletes, you know. Um, some of the golfers have been amazing at it, but a lot of them, there's an opportunity there, I think, to really stand out more. Um, so, you know, there, it's, it's changed because it isn't necessarily about the highest performing star. It's the one that the, the athletes that have got more to them and they've got more depth to them and they've got a better story to tell and broader interest that transcend their sport. That's yeah. where I think is really interesting. But the thing is, Johnny, it's got to be unforced and it can't be um, manufactured because people will see through it. So, yeah, we're seeing, we're seeing, but, you know, it's such an opportunity. And the smart athletes who have got that about them will reap rewards for a long, long time to come. 
um, and brands will all be going at them not for what they actually do on the pitch, but the their, you know the holistic view of them, which is quite exciting, and that's that's a big change in our industry. Yeah, agreed. Um, Steve, can I just speak to you about a topic that is close to our heart at Sheridan's, which is which is esports and gaming. As you know, it's a big part of our business, and indeed, it's a part of our business that we're particularly proud of because we were very much early adopters and we think we've played a role in helping to drive that, uh, that industry forward. And there's no doubt that the last few months has seen a surge in opportunity for the esports and gaming industry. And it's helped, of course, that there's been an absence of live sport and there's been a void to be filled. And of course, esports and gaming is much less reliant on live events in venues. But it's also part of the natural scaling of the industry. I mean, COVID-19 has perhaps turbocharged it, but that journey was already well developed from our perspective. And indeed, one thing we've seen revealed over the last few months is how much professional athletes, just going back to the point Johnny was making, love gaming and love esports. The likes of Deli Alley, Kevin De Bruyne, Gareth Bale, Jordan Pickford, Joffre Archer, all collaborating with esports and online, st online stars. And I guess what is perhaps most interesting from, from our perspective, from our experience in the industry, is that a lot of these collaborations are focused on non-sports simulation games such as Fortnite and Call of Duty. And we think that started to break down a few barriers and in turn has brought huge opportunities for brands. Now, I know esports is also a big part of your plans too. It would be interesting to hear a bit more about those plans, but indeed how you view esports and gaming in the context of connecting the brands you work with to new or different audiences. Yeah, it's it's a perennial watching brief for us and has been for probably the last three or four years. So I think, um, you know, we've talked about it separately because I've been very intrigued with you guys have been doing at Sheridan's. You've, you know, you've built up a, a real bank of knowledge because the contractual situation you're looking at, the counsel that you're giving yeah. around that, because it was like it was all over the show and it was a bit like the Wild West. Um, and nobody really knew how to navigate it, is the truth. So I still think the esports world, and there's, there's, there's sort of gaming and then there's esports. They're, yeah. they're sort of not the same thing, really, but they are the same thing. It's hard to describe, as you know. But that whole convergence between um, true sports, if you like, so what's going on on, you know, football, rugby, tennis, golf, whatever, and the athletes in there, there there's a true convergence now with gaming and esports. It's not like they're two separate things. To me, they're part then, it's more joined up. And you saw, I think you've seen some brilliant activations around esports and gaming over the last three or four months during this whole COVID thing with, you know, some of the golf did, they did, the European Tour did an event, I think. Some yeah. of the F1 stuff that was done was brilliant. Um, and you've seen some of the cricket things, you know, I saw the Joffre Archer doing things as well. So athletes have been going out and doing things. So it's very natural convergence now. It's, on, it's not, it's not um, it doesn't feel like there's this sort of disparate world going on. I think the biggest thing for me in the challenge around esports, it's everyone just piles out numbers. It's big, it's massive, it's huge, it's growing, <laughs> it's growing, it's growing. It's like, like, I'm sick and tired of hearing that. That's great. And, you know, there's a lot of things have big numbers behind it, but I think the issue is because of there's so many moving parts in and around esports and the gaming communities, um, 
obviously we have a brand hat on in that is how do you navigate that how do you actually uh, you know become part of those communities um in a credible way that it doesn't look clunky that you're adding value to those communities you're not just yeah. doing a bad badging exercise you're not overly commercializing it because you seem to sort of take away from the authenticity of it so it's the same way as we would deal with any audience it's finding uh, the sweet spot of how to connect through their passions you know, it's almost become how we just got esports and game has become this hyper passion because it's literally had liftoff. Um, and I think the thing for us is to really have a deep dive understanding on it and find a way to get in and around it so it doesn't just become a numbers game because that's that's what I think that's putting people off because it's making them look over the look over the fence at it, but actually you need to be right in amongst it. Um, and I think that for me, the esports community and the gaming community could do a job coming out the other way to explain the, all the moving parts. How do you get involved? Where's yeah. the talent? What are the key numbers? And that, I mean, that's all for us as agencies to have that knowledge and you guys as, as providing the counselor to have that knowledge. Um, but, you know, where, whereas probably two years ago, it was a bit sort of, um, people were quite condescending around it. That whole industry thinking, oh, it's just you know, a bunch of kids sitting on the side playing computer games at home. That has completely changed. And I think this is not going away. It's going to get bigger. And I think that's great. But it's going to converge even more with the reality of live sport and live moments. And it becomes a huge sort of part of the ecosystem as opposed to sitting out in its own parallel universe. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I mean, one of the things we often talk about at Sheridan's is the misnomer that is the term of esports, which is which is in so many ways an, a media invented term, a media hype term, which has obviously gained you know, so much traction over the last half a decade or so. But in reality, when you're looking at brand activations and, and, and partnerships, you really need to hone in on and focus on individual game titles. In the same way, when you're working with a brand, you would focus on individual sports and how you want to use that sport to speak to a particular audience and esports is no different in that regard and you're right the kind of the 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 the, the gathering and, and pushing out of data in relation to this umbrella term esports is is inherently unhelpful in my view and really it needs yeah. to be stripped back and you need to focus on the individual game titles i mean johnny that's something that we talk about on a regular basis you know in the office when we're you know advising in and around the space yeah, absolutely. One of the things that we try to do with each of our guests on, on the Backpage podcast is obviously talk about an industry trend, but also try and delve into their career journeys a little bit. Um, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of people listening uh, who may be interested in the, the career path of, of Steve Martin. And obviously you spent a number of years at Adidas at the, at the, the sort of in, in the early days and in, in the, gold, the golden years. Um, but if you then think... Well, hold on a minute, hold on a minute, Johnny. The golden years, I haven't picked yet. Thanks very much. Rephrase that question. Yeah, the early years. In, in that case, we'll fast forward to 2004, which is only 16 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And whenever you then um, joined MNC Satchi to head up the sport and entertainment arm, um, at that point in time, obviously you'd have this incredibly successful period at, at Adidas. What was the, what were your expectations at that point? You know, has it has it panned out the way you'd planned, or you know, what what was your vision back then? Um, 
all I remember that first year was sheer fear, you know, real fear. Um, fear can be a, like, you can channel fear into a positive energy. That wasn't happening. <laughs> it was like every day was, what are we doing? Like, to, to go from, you know, to go from a brand and, and the privilege of working for an Adidas brand was just incredible, you know, it was and what you learned. Again, you don't really know what you've learned until you walk out the door. A lot of these things, but if you look back at that time, the brand was growing like never before, but it was down on its knees, you know, three or four years before that, you know, when I joined Adidas in 1996. Um, properly having done a year out when I was at Manchester, you know, in, at University of Manchester, I'd done a year out as part of my degree in the PR department of Adidas UK, and that was the biggest eye. That, that totally changed the fact, the opportunity for me to think, I made the decision I want to be working in the sports industry. Um, you know, to then go back in 1996 and actually start working for them um, fully and full time and, you know, being involved in the most incredible campaigns, seeing how a brand, you know, reinvigorates itself through product design and launching um, incredible products worldwide with no media money, no advertising money. PR was the lead show. And then signing talent through sports marketing and how you work with talent and, you know, whether that was the All Blacks through the Zidane, through the Beckham, Real Madrid, you know, some of the tennis players that we were working with. I mean, just a crazy sort of time. And um, I guess what I learned from that was how to really understand the dynamics of the brand and creating love for a brand. Um, but also then dealing with talent and, and how you then use individual athletes and teams to represent that brand to change the perception of it because you know nike was taking a charge at it again adidas was getting back on its two feet um in a very big way and the momentum behind it was pretty incredible so so whenever i thought at the time then to go to join mnc sachi was to set up their sports thing is that what was happening was more and more brands were coming into the space, whether it was watches, cars, financial services, soft drinks, beers, whatever. Um, they were all using sport to communicate to huge audiences. And that's where the opportunity lay. But starting our own agency from scratch was, I mean, frightening, really frightening and very daunting. And I guess the only thing that gave me great comfort, there was a good name above the door. So it was very important that... You know, the MNC Saatchi name was above the door, even though you had to, you know, really tell everybody what it was all about. Um, but then I think it was really the opportunity to build the dream team, in all honesty, because Morris Saatchi said to me at that time, whenever I was joining, look, the best thing you can do and the best thing I ever did was hire a load of, you know, the people you really like, but a load, load of people who are better than you. And that's what I've really done. I've hired a load of people who are way better than me and it's sort of gelled a team and I can, you know, give them the belief and the spirit and the attitude and that, and that's really what's got us through. But also I think the other thing is, um, you know, it's, yes, it's been really hopefully as smart as we can be and, you know, a real creative energy, you know, we know a great idea when we see it and we're able to then go and deliver that idea. It's not just chat, but I think half the battle of the stuff I've learned to create a, you know, hopefully from day one was being been really approachable and really hopefully not just me, but the whole agency, like really easy and yeah. nice to deal with, really easy and nice to deal with. And, um, you know, we have a thing up on our wall in the office, which was, you know, about actually 
um, you know, being smart people and, you know, creatively challenging and all the rest of it, but, you know, be really nice to work with. Yeah. And hopefully that'll create some loyalty. And that's sort of what happened. And we've had some clients from day one, the likes of Coca-Cola and TaylorMade, good examples. They were with us in the first week and they're still with us now. And I hope they'll be with us in the next 20 years because they've been incredibly loyal. Yeah, it's funny. We had um, Simon Dent on um, one of our previous episodes. We obviously heads up another successful agency, Dark Horses. And he was making that same point that you just made, Steve, which is that, yeah, I think he described himself as being like the conductor. Of he has these incredibly talented people around him. And he also talked a lot about the, the importance of the culture and the people within, within <clears throat> something that, that Andrew and myself and the, and the team Sheridan's try to put a lot of emphasis on as well. I'm guessing, you know, as you've grown the business and, and the team in, in the last decade and a half, good people has been at the sort of heart of everything you've done. Yeah, and, and it should be, it's all we've got. Like, it really is all we've got. Yeah, we have a name above the door. Yes, we've got a, a belief, but it comes from the culture of the team and also having a really, really clear vision. Like, we're pretty ruthless and we're very hard on ourselves. I think that's been why the agency's been successful over the last 15, 16 years. We're really tough on, our cha- on ourselves to move with the times and keep changing. Um, and keep evolving and keep thinking, and that's been that's been magic. But you know, it's I I think the industry changed so much; it's become very very serious. And there's a lot of there's quite a lot of attitude around the industry. You know, there's a lot of I don't know, a bit of cockiness, which I don't like. I think um, you know, I think it's been an agency, an industry which has um, evolved and grown exponentially since 2004. You know, our competitive set is probably used to be about three or four agencies. It's now about 25. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I always used to criticize our ad agency when I go, well, I don't know how you're going to win that pitch because there could be 200 ad agencies on the list and we're blessed because there's only four or five we're up against, particularly in, in the UK market. Um, the competitive set has changed, which means you have to change. and means you have to fight, and particularly in our position, and I hope we're, I hope we're well thought of. I hope we have um, you know, a strong perception of what we stand for but we can never let that stand still. But all we've got is people. And, you know, if I don't have the right people around me um, to drive it forward and keep our offer fresh, well, then we will stand still. But it's good fun. Like, you know, there's, we're, we are totally blessed to work in this industry, but I think a lot of us become very serious. A lot of smart asses around, um, which is interesting, you know, particularly, you know, obviously a lot of people snipe at you and how we go at you. And we see that and hear it and watch it, and that only fuels us even more. So um, I think I think it's, it'll be interesting the next five or six years who's still around. It'll be next. It'll be interesting the next five or six months who's around, given yeah. the last the last yeah. you know four or five months, because I think there's going to be huge change coming, particularly in our little agency world. There'll be convergence massively. Yeah, you know, do, will do, happen, do, and a lot of talent out there. Do you think that kind of inverted commas development of the industry has has created unnecessary complexities because i think from a marketing perspective you've always talked about the message of simplicity and ultimately when you strip it back uh, you know a brand engaging with an audience is is a simple process or should be a simple process i suppose that's something that you you still commit to now in terms of a core message 
Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we make no bones about it, Andrew. When I, I walked into M&C Satya, I was blown away by it. Well, wow, this is big. And this is a big, shiny agency. Very classy, <clears throat> um, which is good because you have a value, you know, from the start. It's, it's premium. It's not some tin pot operation sitting, you know, out in some, you know, godforsaken office place. It was a really, really good um, feeling walking through those doors. But But then it might scare a few people. So... Yeah. Um, I think we had to work very hard on that to, to you know, make sure we um, soften that a little bit. But I think, yeah, I, I think what's happening with the industry is that there's um, there, there's a lot of new kids on the block um, and there's a lot of sort of the bigger agencies trying to reinvent themselves. Um, and that, that really has been one of the, 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 I guess, the key challenges. But as an industry... Um, you know, it's very creative, <clears throat> and I think com- competition's a brilliant thing. Yeah. Like, I think competition keeps you on your toes. It fires your energy. It, uh, you know, you have to make big calls to, to keep that going. Um, so, I don't know. I think, it's an, I think it's an industry that's evolving in a good way, but I, I think there's going to be a lot of change over the next two or three years, in all honesty, if not sooner. Yeah, no, agreed. Um, Steve, just changing tact um, as we sort of move towards the end of the podcast. Obviously, <laughs> all three of us heal not just from Northern Ireland, but from Belfast and indeed uh, the same school in Belfast, which for the benefit of the listeners is Belfast Inst. Um, albeit, um, although we collectively span three different school generations, I don't think there was any ever crossover between uh, any crossover between, between the three of us during our time at Inst. Um, probably a good, I, probably a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, I think you left and I, I, I left and then Johnny um, yeah, brought up the metaphorical rear, but, um, but, but a fantastic experience, um, you know, at, at that fantastic school. Um, I know, however, Northern Ireland remains a huge part of your life, notwithstanding the fact that you've been away for a long time, as it does indeed for, for Johnny and I. And I'm interested to know what you miss most about Northern Ireland. And indeed, also, if you could ever see yourself living there again albeit probably no doubt well into the future thank you um yeah i look i <laughs> you know you know what northern ireland is like it's a funny little place you know I, it's very 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 emotional for me um i yeah. lo- love it i go back there and bounce in there i have so many friends still there obviously my mom and my family are still there um you know, I have a house there in Port Rush, right on the golf course. I'm very lucky to have that, and you know that 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 to me is almost my absolute heartbeat. Um, yeah, it is Northern Ireland. It is the North Coast. It is Port Rush. It is Belfast. I love the people. I love the, you know, just the general attitude of the place. I love the sort of you know people can don't take themselves too seriously. The ones that do are cut down pretty quickly. And I think that gives a sense of normality. And, you know, but what, if you think of Northern Ireland and the school system and all the rest, we were absolutely blessed to come out of there from the belief and confidence it gave you. And, yeah. and I don't think it gave you arrogance. I think it gave you belief and confidence. There's a very fine line between confidence and arrogance. And I think it gave a lovely confidence. Um, but a belief to have a go. And, you know, certainly I grew up right in the middle of the troubles. Obviously, you young guys have probably missed a lot of that. But, you know, I was going down and right in the centre of town. You know, it is obviously, as we know, it's the only school right in the centre of Belfast. And, 
you know, I was in school, they're right in the middle of the troubles. And, you know, we yeah. had to go to the back, back of the school three or four times because the bombs went off and all the windows came in. And, you know, you'd go to the shops at lunchtime, you know, and you'd be searched and you'd have to go through security guards and um, police barriers and all the rest of barricades to get through and just go to get lunch. So, but then it was a bubble of happiness um, yeah. in a way because sport actually is inherent. Sport dominates popular culture there. It's massively important. There's an unbelievable spirit and competitive nature around it. And, you know, Ireland as a nation competes and you know, fights way above its status on the world stage in most sports, whether that's hockey, we've just seen it in the last 24 hours in cricket. We've obviously been had a brilliant time in rugby for the last 10 years, you know, it's probably, we're probably going to go back to where it was for a while. But, you know, you've had these wonderful moments. I used to go to Windsor Park when Northern Ireland beat, West, you know, what it was West Germany at the time. Ian Stewart, he went in, scored the goal 1-0. Never forget Ian it. Ian, Ian Stewart went in, yeah. Yeah, because he was so, actually he was a QPR with my father-in-law. Funnily enough, that's right. Yeah, yeah, he was brilliant. I used to love him. And um, fantastic player. So you know, Northern Ireland punches above its weight, but it bring it keeps you very grounded. You know, you're never going to get ahead of yourself, and I think that's hopefully stood to all of us. It certainly stood to me. There's no point in getting ahead of yourself because you'll be cut down very quickly. But look, I miss I miss a lot of that. I think, but I carry it with me every day. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's been interesting me living in England for the last 20-odd years. Um, my kids and my wife, and my, I've got two young daughters, they absolutely love going to Northern Ireland. They, they love it because, obviously, the memories I have it, but also they love it. Like, they're piling into the sea all the time, going surfing. doesn't bother them one bit. They're having golf lessons. They're playing tennis. They're running. You know, they're into netball. I mean, they're into everything. Um, but they love Northern Ireland because they've been made, made to feel incredibly welcome there, and I don't think I'll ever change. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd, I'd say exactly the same about my kids. I mean, they're only three and five, but they absolutely adore going back. Albeit they do whinge constantly about how cold it is. <laughs> I don't know if yours are, totally. are the same, but um, but yeah, I mean, um, it's it's it, you know, you talk about that emotional connection. That's something that that I feel. I know it's something that Johnny feels, and it's interesting when I try and explain that to my. To my English friends, they don't fully fully grasp it, and it really is a special relationship that we're fortunate to have with with them, with with where we're where we're from and 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 our home, uh, and it's and, and that kind of connection that we all have through through Inst is obviously you know deeply important as well. Johnny and I have been fortunate enough to to go back and speak to the school and the sick form about careers in sports law, but also careers in the sports industry generally, and it really is a, an extraordinary place. And obviously, you had. Um, the elite sports scholarship as well with the school um, from a few years ago, um, which was which was pretty successful. Yeah, Michael that's Lauren been really that. yeah, that's been really interesting. I mean, I, I just felt like I wanted to give something back to the school, and you know, we opened up a, a sports scholarship basically that I supported one of the real you know talents coming through that have sort of representative level of some sort at, yeah. at school, school's level, but they don't know what the next step is. They don't know whether they go to professional sport, but they don't know, they, you know, a lot of them want to be in and around it. So they came and worked with us over the summer, taught them the ropes, gave them experience in London. Um, you know, I sort of mentored them through through a lot of that, introduced them different product line, got them support in terms of extra coaching, etc. So it's been a great thing for me. I, I've been only delighted to do it personally. Um, and we've had some real talent come through, as you say. Michael Lowry is probably the standout. Um 
one who, who, who came through my scholarship there and you know he's gone on to be this probably the starting full back for Ulster um you know he played Ireland schools he's got into the Ulster Academy he's now he started you know full time the Ulster 15 he'd play probably in um you know the team this year and you could see him because he's still quite young he will quickly get through onto the Ireland panel I would say um Showing, he's an showing unbelievable that, talent. Showing that size isn't everything, even Correct. in this day and age of professional rugby as well. Fantastic, fantastic young talent. Correct. So, so you know, Northern Ireland's very, very important place. I think the big one of the biggest things for me is actually <laughs> that helped me hugely in my career going and living in England. That everybody would take would remember me on the phone. I mean, it was as simple <laughs> as that, and you know, it wasn't sending WhatsApps or emails or anything. You didn't have any of that. You know, yeah. it was purely phone calls and phone calls and meetings and meetings and meetings. So I got to know everybody in and around the industry very, very, very quickly. But they'd all, they'd all know who was on the phone, the stupid accent we have. So um, it sort of helped. If one thing from Northern Ireland really helped, it was that. Yeah. 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 Although, although, although Johnny accuses me of, of losing my accent. Must be, he seems right. to think I've got uh, a sort of a quasi-English accent, but, but I try to explain to him that actually that is a Hollywood Northern Irish accent. The Hollywood Northern Irish accent is, is semi-English. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. The, you know, the other thing that's great about Northern Ireland is that whenever I sort of, I mean, I've only been in London for five years, so probably a, a shorter period of time than, than obviously both of you, but whenever I was sort of making the move over here, there was, there was this sense that, you know, if you want to work in sport, you have to get out of Northern Ireland because it's a tiny place. And actually, even in the last five years, I'm sure you've both seen it, the growth of the sports and entertainment industry in the island of Ireland is actually quite exciting. Uh, and a lot of that is, is down to the success on the field of play of Irish athletes and sports teams and events that have been hosted in Ireland. But actually, there's more to it than that in that we're seeing a sort of a small but, but growing industry emerging from not just Belfast, but Dublin as well. And certainly something that, that Andrew and I see a lot because we're, we're doing more work probably in, in Ireland than, than, we, than we did previously. Well, also the yeah, and I, I'm a bit... Yeah, the sports tech is huge, obviously, in, in, in South of Ireland. Like, I'm a massive believer. I just love Ireland. You know, I, I've never really... You know, despite we grew up in the north and um, in Belfast, you know, we spent so much time in Dublin. You know, uh, I spent so much time travelling around in round Cork, played rugby down there, played a lot of rugby in, in round um, Dublin as well. So I really, I sort of love Ireland and the more joined up it can be in terms of its sporting things. And I love the fact Ireland plays as one in rugby. I love the fact that Ireland plays as one in golf. I love the fact Ireland plays as one in cricket. Ireland plays as one in tennis. Yeah. Just, you know, sport has really, really helped break down the political divide. Um, and, you know, it's probably an amazing case study to shine on, like, on, on the rest of the world where sport can be this Trojan horse to you know, take away political tension and rise above all that. You know, it's a massive investment that we're going to make over the next, probably the next 12 months is about, um, you know, we're going to create a whole division within, within the, 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 the agency, which will be about driving purpose through sport and human, 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 humanitarian change through sport, yeah. you can nearly say that, um, through sport, because I think it can be done and you know, sport can override all those things and shine a light on the positive side of some countries and gel people together as opposed to making them more 
disaffected and more disparate. And I think within Ireland, sport has been amazing in terms of cutting down those barriers that were very, very much prevalent when we were growing up and horrendous growing up. And I hope they never sort of come back. And you see them sort of ra- rise sometimes in this infighting. I, I just hate it so much. But I would yeah. love... I'd love Ireland to be, you know, certainly if it can't be together as one in, in um, you know, a geographical sense, I don't think that's going to happen for quite a while. But um, if it can be in a sporting sense, well, then I think that'll be brilliant. Uh, and just to bookend that comment, I mean, obviously with the, the death of John Hume this week, I mean, he often um, spoke with great eloquence about the power of sport in terms of, of breaking down those barriers that you, you mentioned and, and identified. Yeah, yeah, and you look at the open. You look at the open last year. It was one of our, you know, how magical was that that a guy from the south of Ireland wins the open, the biggest sporting yeah. event ever, ever to be on the, the Irish shores, wins it in the north. Um, you know, that was the epitome to me of the New Ireland, and I think it's quite exciting. <clears throat> you know, and that 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 just you know we've had wonderful moments from that, and um, but you, you you know it's about taking the learnings from that. I think it's uh, sport has cut through so many things. Well, you know, since Mandela talked about it, obviously, you know, in the World Cups and how it gelled South Africa for that period of time as well. Yeah. yeah. There's a <coughs> little question that we put to all of our podcast guests, and we've had such a range of different <laughs> answers and responses. So I'm interested, interested as to what, um, what your answer will be, Steve. But the question is really, is there a piece of content, any piece of content, and it can be, sport related or, or non-sport related <coughs> you've enjoyed recently that you would recommend and it could be a, a book that you've read it could be an article a podcast a netflix documentary something that you would um that you'd recommend and, uh, and that you've enjoyed recently yeah i mean i try to keep my eye on everything i'm pretty horrendous at that actually i, I annoy my whole family and that they're like will you ever like stop but i, I feel like I don't like missing stuff, you know. So um, there's been so many things. I mean, there's. Does it have to be sport, Johnny, or not? Can it be Can we anything and everything? Anything. Anything and everything. I mean, I'm, ironically, we're talking about Northern Ireland. I'm reading and have read quite a few books recently about um, British intelligence working in and around the the time of the troubles around some individuals who were flicked from being on one side of the fence to the other. <clears throat> I find it so fascinating because, you know, we grew up and that and tried to ignore it all. And actually now when I'm not there, sort of reflecting back and reading a lot of that, I'm, I'm just so fascinated by it. It's, I can't get my head around it, what, what actually went on and some of the intelligence that went on and how that was gathered and from both sides. Um, so I'm really, really intrigued and I've read two or three you know, pretty good books now. I guess... You know, I love autobiographies. I absolutely love real stuff. I'm, I don't really like fiction, science fiction and all that. I'm not yeah. into that at all, at all. Um, can't stand it, in fact. So, you know, I'm into you know, real life stuff. What, is this, what do these people do? And why were they so successful? Or what happened that made them non-successful? You know, I mean, I love Agassiz's book. I think Andre Agassiz's book is the best autobiography I've ever read. Um, I love the books in Kobe Bryant. I met Kobe Bryant when he was 19. I thought he was an incredible character. Um, he was signed for Adidas at that time. I took him on a world tour. Actually, it was amazing when he was only 19. And so if you saw what happened to his life, it was quite, I mean, incredibly sad. 
horrific actually what's happened to him but the story of his life was just amazing so i think that's brilliant um of obviously everybody in the whole industry talking about last dance i've loved that um avidly sort of watched it and you know you can see the good the bad and the ugly coming out of that and how it was controlled but it was still brilliant but you know i think some of the stuff i really have quite liked from a brand perspective recently i really i've loved the challenge that we've all had to go through like um where there has been no live sport and you've had to pivot hugely into sort of digital ideas and concepts and mm. how the hell do we make this work? And when the Olympics was cancelled, it was like, oh my God, like, you know, what a moment that was for the industry. And it felt really very, I mean, it was pretty downhearted for obviously all the right reasons. But I've loved some of the things that have come out as a result. And I'm, I've been really impressed with the stuff that Airbnb have done. So you know, when they actually got the opportunity to go and spend time with those athletes and you can go and book a live Zoom class with Olympians all over the world and all yeah. their different, like I can go and, you know, learn how to swim. I can you live and you, can, you pay $25 for that. And, but you can also then get TED style speeches about belief and mentality and fighting back from things. You know, so they have, a, if you look, you go on that Airbnb site where they've built all these individual athletes you'd never get any contact with at all. You can go and book a live session with them for an hour, 45 minutes and get a little snapshot of their life, whether it's about the physical side, the training and that sort of side that you can do a live class with, or you can learn from the sort of mentor, their, the way their heads are and how they believe and, you know, how they attack things and how they come back from adversity and all that. And I just think that's been wonderful. That's one of the things I've really loved. I, you know, I always think, if there's a piece of work that I see that we haven't done, it used to really, really annoy me. Like, mm-hmm. I used to, I said, why the hell didn't we do it? But now it sort of inspires me, and I, I sort of, you know, always think brilliant, you know, caps off to you, and I really like that. I, th- I think people should have a look at that. Yeah. Have you ever read John? Have you ever read Johnny Wilkinson's autobiography, by the way? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I always thought that was it. I, I mean, it's a little, a little intense at times, but it's a really fascinating insight into his mindset which even in the context of elite sport is pretty unique <laughs> I yeah i that. love johnny I, I i got to know johnny pretty well over the years from you know adidas days and um and other things we know when a travel x was one of our big first clients at mnc sachi when in the first couple of years we did all the work with him in travel x right up to you know in and around actually when, when you know, england became world champions and he kicked that drop goal so got to know Johnny pretty well. Yes, he is very intense and he is probably the most focused I've ever seen of any uh, yeah. athlete I've ever worked with. I mean, unbelievable, but he's brilliant and he's the nicest guy. Like, he's so approachable. There's somebody who's not, not let anything go to his head. I mean, yeah. amazing, yeah. amazing. Not, not even, in, like, there's not an ounce of arrogance in him, um, which is, I, I think he's magic and... Um, you know, it was a great privilege, the professionalism around how he worked and the focus how he, how he worked and how that would then rub off in the commercial world. He was a delight. You know, when you think about the commercial success of him, it was really well managed. And yeah. But what, what an ambassador he was for, you know, at that time and still is. Yeah, it's interesting. He's actually from Farnham, where I live in Surrey, and literally yeah, five minutes down the road is, is Wilkinson Way. So he even has an, a road named after him here. But one of the things that, you know, just to finish on Johnny, one of the things that fascinated me about his book was, that, and it is quite intense, but but it, it is equally insightful in it. He would visualize himself on camera throughout the day, and then when he finished his day, he would he would 
look back at the, the, the video footage, the metaphorical video footage to see what he could have done better. Uh, and it's, it's, as I say, it's, it's perhaps not a, a process that, that would be for everyone, but it was a real insight into how he went about things as an elite performer. But uh, yeah, no, it's... Uh, but you know, that's the, that's the beauty of it. Like, there'll never be, you know, never be short of stories and never be sort of, you know, talent and characters in and around team dynamics, coaching, you know, that's, I, I really love all that stuff and I love hearing it first person. Um, yeah. And I think that's, uh, I, you know, it's never ending. You can go and read out, you know, um, I, I actually love Eddie Jones and, and you know, yeah. well, he's an Irishman, you shouldn't say it, but I love Eddie Jones. <laughs> I, again, I've got to know him feasibly and, I think he's fascinating. Like he knows what he's at. He knows where to push all the right and wrong buttons. But you know, he's a really interesting character, and actually, his book's brilliant as well. So you know, there's so much stuff around the world that you're never going to be. You know, we're never going to be. It's never going to dry up, um, and we're always going to be inspired in this industry by something else we see. And I think that's why the whole competition within our industry has helped us all get better. And you're seeing ideas and, you know, um, particularly in the last three or four months, probably some of the, I, I reckon some of the best work we've ever done as an agency has happened in the last three or four months because we've been forced and we've been forced into a corner and we're probably quite good when we're in the corner. Um, to come up with something that forces your mind to come up with ideas. I think the biggest change we're going to see in the industry over the next 12 months, if not shorter than that, is speed. Speed yeah. to market. There's going to be less um, pontificating over launching things into next year. You know, at speed, you're going to be turning around things within 24 hours. You're going to be acting yeah. like a news, newsroom mentality, highly editorially driven, you know, and that plays into our hands because we've got a lot of, you know, a real editorial understanding and drive and belief and spirit within the agency. But I think speed is going to be the thing that changes the whole thing. Um, yes, we're going to have data and insight, but that's sort of become the norm now. Um, and you're going to have measurement out the back. That's sort of become the norm now. You have to have both. What everybody doesn't have is speed. And I think that is what will be the game changer. And that's the ones who are, can still do the beautiful work that has huge impact, is creatively magic, but at real speed will be the ones that win. Um, and I think that's really quite exciting because that'll force, that'll force people to come up with really even better ideas and it'll move the, agency, the industry along again, which is what it needs. Yeah. yeah. I'm conscious that it's, um, it's actually quite early in the morning with, with us in London, but it actually is getting quite late with you in Sydney. And I'm, I'm guessing your dogs are probably wanting to be taken down to the beach for their <laughs> eight night walks soon. Um, yeah, so they're going to bite my MR for, for food, I think, in a minute too. But. <laughs> but yeah, just to say thanks again, Steve, for, for taking the time to share your insights. Um, and hopefully we will get a chance to catch up whenever you're next back in London or perhaps Northern Ireland, if we're lucky. Yeah, we well, would love that. We'd love that. I think at the minute it's going to be a bit of a while, which is just a great shame, you know. But um, do, you have, do you have a timeline as to when you, you, you might be back on these shores? Yeah, I think probably, you know, the plan was obviously to, was originally to do two years. I mean, like, it's a very easy place to get in the rhythm of, you know, it'd be very hard to leave when we do leave. But I think... Doing a global job from here is tough because of the time frame, but it was always going to be two years. And I think we'll see the two years out, which yeah. will be the middle of, middle of next year. I suspect we'll be back. Um, you know, it wouldn't be exciting to do that again. It'd be great to be back. I love London. I love the whole setup there. I love the industry around it. Um, 
you know, never one day ever moaned about getting out of bed to go into the office there or go into what we do. We're very privileged to work in it. And I think the day and hour you take your eye off that, you're in trouble. So, you know, yeah. this has been an amazing experience and I think it'll stand to us for a long, long time. It'll stand the family for a long, long time. But, you know, I'll bounce back into London and, you know, there'll be no, no regrets in any shape or form. And bounce back onto the first tee at Walton Heath as well, presumably. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, if they'll have me. <clears throat> yeah, hopefully. Yeah, it'd be great. I mean, wow. it's been great to, to play golf down here. You know, I've joined New South Wales down here, which is an incredible, incredible golf course. You know, it really is. It's magical as well. It really is a very special place. And that keeps a bit of a connection. It reminds me of Port Rush, so it gives me a bit of a connection. And, you know, Walton Heath is a very special place as well. It's got all that history and some great golfers there. It's a great golf course. I've got great friends there as well. So, yeah, there's a lot to come back for as well. Well, we look forward to an invite to a round at Walton Heath in, in, <laughs> in due course when you get back. But as Johnny said, Steve, look, it's been a real pleasure and a privilege to have, have you on the podcast. I mean, we talked about some of the inspirational content from athletes, but there's no doubt that, that the content um, you know, from you and, and, and what you're doing is equally inspirational. And, and as I say, we're really grateful to you for taking the time, particularly it being so late night in, in Sydney. And Obviously, good luck for the rest of your time there, and we look forward to staying in touch and to hearing about it. And as I say, you know, getting on that first tee at Walton Heath in, in due course. <laughs> Great, guys. Well, thank you very much. Always enjoyed the chat, and I wish you boys well. Um, you've been doing great things, I know. I've been incredibly impressed what you were doing, and you know, it's emotional for me to see you guys successful as well. So keep, we all keep going. We all keep going. We're grateful, Steve. Speak to you soon, mate. See you soon. Great stuff. Thanks. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening to the Sheridan Sport Backpage Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Sheridan Sport and also subscribe to our Backpage blogs and previous podcast episodes. You can also share ideas and connect with us individually on Twitter and LinkedIn. Feel free to get in touch with one of the team. Andrew, Dan, Chris, Johnny, Alex, Sarah, Ryan and L. Finally, the Backage Podcast is powered by Milestone, a mental health charity aimed at tackling setbacks through sport and in turn helping to normalise the conversation around mental health. To learn more about Milestone and its aims and how you can get involved, visit teammilestone.co.uk or check them out on Instagram at milestone.uk or Twitter at milestone underscore UK. Thanks for listening.